0: Thanks for listening to the Light Church podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you into this place right now, and we ask, Lord, that even in the change of things, uh, outside of our normal rhythm, it doesn't really matter. We just know that you are God and that you're speaking to us, and you're so much bigger than like a slick, well-run event. You're more interested in us as family, as brothers and sisters growing together in our discipleship in the way of Jesus. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd speak to us through your word now, shape us and form us into the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're in a preaching series called The Trellis, and uh, basically we're taking this idea of a vineyard where you would build up a trellis, and then you would plant seed in the ground, and then water and sunlight and life would happen. And over a season of time, the uh, seed would sprout and then the seed would grow. And in order for a plant to bear good fruit and grow well, it would need a trellis in place that would guide the plant in terms of its flourishing and growth and sustainability going forward. And we've used this analogy to build out our lives as disciples of Jesus. And for us, the trellis is the spiritual practices that Jesus models for us throughout the the Bible. Uh, These are things like reading the Bible, like prayer, like uh, celebration. And today we're going to talk about my favorite spiritual practice and my least favorite, like not even a close second to last, like a very far last favorite. Okay, feasting, my favorite one, and fasting. Basically, we're going to talk about food. Let's open our Bibles, Matthew and... um, and let's stand together for, for God's word, if you, if you don't mind doing so. We're going to read Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, and then we're going to read Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. In Matthew's gospel, he writes, at, the, at that time, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards was hungry. Matthew chapter 11, the Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So today we're going to talk about food. And there's a lot of opinions when it comes to food and diet in the modern day. There's people that do keto dieting and paleo diets. And there are people that eat an unhealthy diet and a really healthy diet. There are do, like intermittent fasting, people who don't eat breakfast. I don't know why you would do that. Uh, there's people that, that's a joke, you can do it if you want, don't, whatever. Uh, there's people that eat lots of meat, people who don't eat lots of meat, high protein diets. Currently, I'm on a seafood diet. Basically, it's just I see food and I eat it. Um, but, for, but food is a big topic in the modern day, and today we're going to talk about feasting and fasting. Because uh, fasting is one of the central practices of Jesus, what we want to do this morning is take a brief moment on the front end of the message and talk about fasting, and this will basically be somewhat of an announcement for uh, a church-wide fast that we're going to do in a two-weeks time, and then we're going to look at feasting and spend most of our time talking about eating good food. Okay, so does that sound good? All right, let's do it. Let's start off with fasting. Over a thousand years ago, or for over a thousand years, fasting was one of the central practices of the early church. It was one of the central disciplines and weekly practices of the Church of Jesus Christ for over 1,500 years. It was part of the daily or weekly rhythms where the Church of Jesus would fast at least two times a week, mostly on a Wednesday and a Friday. And then it was also part of the 40 days of Lent where disciples of Jesus in the Christian church would fast. Similar to disciples uh, discipleship and practices like prayer and reading the scriptures, fasting was one of the central things that was just part of what it meant to be a Christian. It wasn't something that like super spiritual Christians did or like, the leaders in the church, or like a certain subsect of Christianity. It was just, you were a Christian, you read the Bible, you prayed, you also fasted. It was was one of those things. After all, Jesus began his own ministry and his own life with what? 40 days of fasting. He went into the wilderness. And then we see all throughout Jesus' life, given to us and modeled for us in the Gospels, that he continued to fast throughout his lifetime. And Jesus then says to his disciples, come and follow me. That's the invitation. When Jesus calls his disciples, he says, follow me. In essence, saying, come and live the same kind of life that I live. I'm going to model a certain way of living, and then you're going to come and do so as well. It was an invitation to follow his example. And so it would make complete sense for disciples of Jesus in any day to practice the, and incorporate the spiritual practice of fasting into our weekly rhythms. Now, when Jesus talks about discipleship, what he has in mind is a comprehensive whole person engagement with the way, with the way of Jesus. He he has in mind that we would submit ourselves and follow him with our body, with our soul, and with our mind. And fasting is actually one of the very few spiritual disciplines or practices that take into account the entire person. If you've ever spent a day fasting, you know that not only is it your stomach, your body that is in a bit of a a, a disciplining or a formation process, it's actually you start to have a mental uh, uh, kind of component to it as well as you wrestle with, man, I'm hungry and maybe I can just sneak a little cracker or something on the side. There's also a spiritual soul level engagement that happens when we fast. And so what we want to do is just kind of look very briefly... Why do we fast? What is the point of this? Kind of make some sense as an overview and then put a, a date in place for us to fast together as a church and practice this discipline corporately. So John Mark if you know him, he's an expert on the spiritual disciplines and practices. Go onto his website. It's called Practicing the Way. And uh, you should write that down, practicingtheway.org, I think. Go check it out. There's a bunch of spiritual practices that are being released and will help you in your discipleship. But John Mark Comer gives us three reasons why we should fast. He says, firstly, we offer ourselves up to Jesus when we fast. Secondly, we grow in holiness. And thirdly, fasting helps us amplify our prayers. Grow in Jesus, or offer ourselves up to him, grow in holiness, and amplify our prayers. But what we need to remember is that the ultimate goal to fasting is actually not to, like, come into some kind of equation, like an interaction, like I do this and then Jesus, you'll do that. It's actually to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ with our bodies, soul, and minds and cultivate a deeper yearning and hunger for God. What is hunger? Hunger is a state of wanting or needing something that we do not have. And so when we fast, we practice the discipline of submission and going without food, in this case, so that we can cultivate a deeper yearning and hunger in our bodies that will create an awareness of how much we actually need spiritual nourishment from the Father. And so when we fast, we awaken our body and our soul to the deep yearning that is in us, whether we are aware of it or not, for home. A deep yearning to be with the Father, for more of God in your life? Why do we practice any of the spiritual disciplines? Why do we pray, read the Bible, fast, celebrate, feast? Why do we do mission, go on mission, proclamation, silence and solitude? Why do we do any of this? Well, none of the practices are there to be for the sake of themselves. You don't fast or read the Bible just for the sake of doing it. We do all of the spiritual disciplines and practices like we spoke last week, to cultivate a deeper realization and encounter with God in our everyday stuff of life, to grow in our relationship with Jesus. Now, with all of the spiritual disciplines and practices, none of them are formulaic, as I've said. We cannot control our spiritual formation, we cannot control becoming more like Jesus, and we cannot control our relationship with God. However, with that said, you, we do get what out what we put in. There is that reality that takes place. You know, the more fully you give yourself over to a spiritual practice, the more life-changing that practice is going to be for you. And, and, and the more we just dabble with it, the more we kind of just dabble with reading the Bible or praying or taking a few shortcuts, sneaking a cracker on the side when we fast, the less of an effect that particular practice is going to have on our life. It's like, you know, going to the gym and working out. If you can go in and the more you work out, the more you stretch yourself physically, the fitter and healthier you're going to be. And the more shortcuts and pieces of cake and donuts that we eat on the side, the less of an impact that's going to have on our lives. And the same can be true of the spiritual discipline. So with all that to say, we also want to emphasize the fact that there is no formation without repetition. Spiritual formation is a slow, deep work that takes months, years, not weeks. And so when we give ourselves over to any spiritual discipline, like fasting for instance, it's not like let's fast in two-week time as a church and then like we did it, crushed it, we're Christians, we fasted and now I'm done. I honestly wish that was the case. Uh, I would love to not fast. But there's a reality to the fact that as we are practice the spiritual disciplines of Jesus, over and over again in our lives, repetition causes formation in our hearts. And so we want to be like Jesus. Okay, why fast? Firstly, to offer ourselves up to Jesus. In the modern world, you are more likely to hear about fasting from a Muslim or a Buddhist or a nutrition expert or fitness guru than you are to hear about fasting from disciples of Jesus in the church. I don't know how often you've come and you've interacted with a Christian. You just say, hey, how was your week? You know, fasted this week, feeling great. We just kind of, it's a discipline that we're not really inclined to engage with. Most followers of Jesus no longer fast regularly. Yet in history and in the teachings of Jesus fasting, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you fast. It was implied. Not if you fast. Jesus just assumed that his disciples, that Christians, would be following in his example, and incorporate fasting into their discipleship. One of the reasons fasting has fallen by the wayside is because we've lost sight of what uh, Pope John Paul II called a theology of the body. Theology of the body. This is a biblical theology that a human being is a whole person. no. Oftentimes we look at our discipleship with Jesus or our relationship with God the Father and we think of it as a mental and spiritual interaction only. But there is a theology that a human being does not have a body, we are a body. This is part of our discipleship to Jesus. You know, the, the, the scriptures tell us that, and Jesus tells us that we must take seriously our bodies Our body is, and to quote the scriptures, a temple for the Holy Spirit, a home where God chooses to dwell by his presence. Most of us are used to considering our spiritual formation and life with God through our minds, by thinking, talking, praying, reading, hearing, teaching, and preaching. It's all amazing stuff. But very few of us are approaching our spiritual formation through our stomachs or our body as a whole. And fasting was one of the best practices that we have to reintegrate our mind and our body and offer our whole selves over to God the Father. So, secondly, why do we fast? We also fast because we want to grow in holiness. St. Augustine was once asked, why fast? And his answer was, because it's sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to illicit pleasures in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. See, when we fast, at least four things are happening in our body and our soul. Number one, it's weaning us off the pleasure principle, you know, just like get what we want when we want it now, which is probably most prevalent in today's day and age where any pleasure that we want is kind of instant. Anything that we want, we've got DoorDash and Instacart and all the things where we can just get what we want now. Secondly, it's revealing what's in our own hearts. Start to get hangry, Right. Hungry and angry combined, and then you start to to get frustrated. What's in your heart? What comes out of us when we are confronted with not being able to satisfy pleasures instantly? Thirdly, it's reordering of our desires. And fourthly, it's drawing on the power of God to overcome sin. We start to realize, hey, I'm actually not capable in and of my own mental strength and ability to overcome even just going without lunch today. God, I need your help. Growing in holiness. Thirdly, why do we fast? Well, we fast because it also amplifies our prayers. Now, here's the thing. You can pray without fasting, and you can fast without praying. Totally fine. But when you take the two, when you take fasting and prayer, and you interlock the two, and there is a noticeable amplification for our prayers being heard by God and God responding. Again, it's not transactional. However, there is this direct relationship between partnering the two together and offering all of ourselves over to God. Fasting is an aid in hearing God. It helps us discern his voice from all of the noise that's around us in our lives and all of the distractions. Fasting also makes it easier for us to hear God and his will and his direction for our lives. If you take a day to fast, your, your, the, the hunger in your belly will awaken your soul and your mind in ways that we wouldn't, else, wouldn't have otherwise, and will actually create an openness to not only speaking to God, but hearing from Him as well. And fasting also is an aid for us to being heard from by God Himself. Fasting helps us break through the walls that stand between us and the release of God's plans and presence and power. In both scriptures and church history, we see this reality when prayer and fasting link arms, it's often the tipping point that releases God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. There's just that, there's just like, John Aldridge puts it this way, he says, there's just a way things work, and God in his divine wisdom has placed within this beautiful relationship between prayer and fasting that power will be released. And so it's our responsibility as disciples of Jesus to lean into that example. And so we're going to implement this corporately, right? It's quite simple. Fasting is we go without food. And you can set it, it can be for a day, it can be for a meal a day, it can be for an extended period of time. But what we're going to do is you all know that on the 7th of November… Tuesday, the 7th of November, we are having a night of worship here in this space, and we cannot wait for that to happen. Caitlin will give you more details in a moment about that, but we're going to get together as a church community, and we're inviting our Encinitas Church down to come be with us on that evening as well, and we're going to have an extended time of worship on Tuesday evening, the 7th of November. You can write this down now. We have our Tuesday morning prayer meeting that happens every week from 7 until 8 a.m. So on the 7th of November, we have two moments, the Tuesday morning 7 to 8 prayer meeting, and then the evening time of worship at 6.30 here in this building, both happening here. And what we want to do as a church community is say, hey, let's actually get alongside each other and practice this discipline together, linked arms with brothers and sisters. We'll go hungry together. We'll start here in the morning. We'll open up in a time of prayer. We'll fast during the day, and then we'll come in celebration in the evening and worship together and so we're gonna set aside a day of prayer and fasting on November the 7th and this can be just for the sake of cultivating the discipline of fasting maybe you've never fasted before and this is a moment to say hey I'm gonna do it with my brothers and sisters in the church community and I'm just gonna try and see what happens and and pray and hopefully make it through the day and uh, for some of you this might be fasting might be the easiest thing in the world and you just are so pumped for this wherever you fall on that scale come, let's get together, let's practice a discipline or a spiritual practice that Jesus instituted for us, and let's trust that the Holy Spirit will, will release power in our obedience and submission to the Lord. Tuesday, the 7th of November, we're going to fast together. Sound good? Okay, let's talk about feasting. <sighs> feasting, my favorite. Who loves food? Great. If you didn't put your hand up, you'd be lying. You love food. We all love food. I love all foods, everything. If I can eat it, I love it. Feasting. Now, fasting, reading the Bible, prayer, these are all spiritual disciplines and practices that we would probably expect to hear during a series like this. But not often do we come into an interaction with feasting as a spiritual discipline. But what I wanna to do today is look at how feasting is a spiritual discipline and how we can use food or how Jesus used food to delight in God's good gifts and how Jesus used food as a tool for mission to bring people into conversation and welcome. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. If you've got your Bibles, you can open it or it'll come up on the screen, hopefully. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything and followed him. What we see here in Luke chapter 5 is the scene where Jesus invites his disciples to come and follow him. And then what we see is the way that Jesus uses food and how that becomes some kind of controversy in 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 the community. So two things I want to do today. If we've looked at fasting, and now we're going to look at the counter practice of feasting. Two things I want to do, I want to take a a historical dive into the role of food, and then I want to talk about how Jesus uses food as a weapon of love. So let's start off by looking at an historical dive in Roman culture. Food in Roman culture was central. Romans would build their homes in such a way and organize their homes in such a way that people's class would be on display in their ability to eat food. Okay, so track with me with this. At the center of a Roman home, you would have this like lounge area, and people would kind of lounge around on cushions and couches and beanbags and like whatever the ancient Israel version of a beanbag was, and you would lie around and you would eat. It would be a comfortable place where you would eat together and relax. Those who were less important would have to stand around the outside of the room, and they would eat their meals standing kind of off some kind of... Plate of sorts. So you would have the inner sanct, which would be like us in the middle here, lounging around and eating, relaxing, comfortable. You'd have the less important folk around the outside of the room, standing around who would eat from their hands. And then you'd have those who were kind of the outcasts, who were not welcome into the home, and they would eat outside the home. And so what you would have in ancient culture, Roman culture, was you would have an example three times a day when you came to eat a meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, how low or how high you were in the social food chain. Contrast this with the Jewish culture. The Jews, as we know, were the people chosen by God, and they, they were chosen to model a completely different way to the culture of the world. Check this out. Let's go through the Bible together. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world, and what does, it, what does he say? He says, eat whatever you see is yours. Adam and Eve are in this beautiful lush garden of Eden. So essentially, God just creates this beautiful uh, salad buffet for Adam and Eve. Just eat whatever you want. It's all yours. In Exodus, when they're setting up the tabernacle and God's giving his people instruction on how they're going to worship him in the temple, there's this interesting phrase there. He says, he talks about the bread of God's presence. So what we know from these instructions is the temple, the place where people would come together and worship God, there would be an element of food taking place as an expression of worship. In Psalm 23, this famous passage about God shepherding care over his people, he uses this language, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In Isaiah 25, God will prepare a feast of rich food for his people. In Luke 22, you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. In Matthew chapter 8, take their place in the feast with Abraham in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven is like a great banquet, says Jesus in Matthew 22. Blessed is the man who gets to feast in the kingdom of God in Luke 14. And right at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7, we read, never again will they hunger or thirst. And this is just a few examples of how it seems that woven through the entire biblical narrative is this role that food takes in following our Father in heaven as disciples of Jesus. But let's jump back to Luke's gospel and see... That Jesus, as he's he's with this tax collector, and they're walking along a street, and he just bumps into Matthew, the tax collector, and he just invites him, come, be my disciple. And one of the first steps of discipleship to Jesus that Matthew takes is eating a meal with him. And so what you see now is Jesus, he's at Matt's house, they're having a party, they're breaking bread, they're eating food, and Matthew brings a bunch of his mates over, and they're having a meal. And the Pharisees, they arrive, and what happens in the scriptures, you'll notice, is when the Pharisees rock up, they're oftentimes just like the fun police of the New Testament. They just come and they like, take all the joy out of every situation and just put a bunch of rules. And so the Pharisees rock up, and they, what, they, they, what we end up seeing is that one of the most subversive things that Jesus does in his entire ministry is he eats food with the wrong people. And so Jesus and the, and the Pharisees, they use food in two completely different ways. Uh, let's, let's consider, how do the Pharisees use food? Well, the Pharisees use food uh, in such a way to exclude people from the, the sanct, from, from being uh, part of the body, from God. And what we see in this passage here is that Jesus, he went on, he sees Matt sitting in a tax booth, he goes over, hey, come follow me, Matthew gets up, follows him, They're having dinner at Matthew's house, tax collectors and sinners, and the wrong people show up. The Pharisees see this, and they ask the question, why does your religious leader eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the Gentiles, these people that Jesus is eating with, they were seen as the sinners, And the Pharisees, they had this vision that the kingdom of God would only be realized through holiness. Like basically, all of us need to get our act together, follow a very strict bunch of rules and laws, and only once we achieve this like high standard of holiness, then we would be welcomed into the kingdom of God and the Messiah would come. And so the Pharisees are just like, What is happening? Why is he indulging in this kind of practice? And so the Pharisees come about and they're upset. Now you have the second group of people. You following me? You with me still? I know there's a lot. The second group of people, the Gentiles, the, the, the so-called sinners. Now, what do you think of when we talk about this word or the, the, when you hear the word sinner? Mostly, you and I would think of someone that's, you know, maybe caught in sexual sin or someone who drinks too much, someone who gets angry they do the wrong things, right? We think of people that are lawbreakers. But now during Jesus' day, that term sinner was a little bit different if you were in that culture. You see, sinners were those who could not live up to the rules and laws that were instituted by the Pharisees. The Pharisees had such a conviction that the Messiah would only come when there was holiness and everyone abided by these rules and laws. And what they did with a meal was actually remarkable. Okay, follow with me. What the Pharisees did is they took all of the religious rules and laws that were observed by the priest in the temple around food, and they instituted that for every single home. And the problem with all of these extra rules and laws around a meal was that most people in society could not financially afford it. So, can you imagine that? In order to be accepted or to be holy... All of us had to go and buy food from Harvest Ranch, and we had to buy the best cut of rhubarb steaks, and you had to buy the best fruit, and you had to buy the best vegetables, and their grocery bills would have been exorbitant. And then there would have been a whole bunch of other rituals and things that they needed to follow that would have cost money that were not accessible to the majority of the Gentiles. So can you imagine the single mom, the stay-at-home dad, the community living in San Diego, experiencing the highest rates of inflation we have known to date. In order for us to come to church, in order for us to be part of the Christian community, we had to purchase meals and prepare them in such a way that 90% of us just could not financially afford it. And so you'd be excluded from the family of God. Can you, did you see how oppressive that would be? And so you have this whole class of people who just give up on following Jesus because they can't afford those holiness standards of the Pharisees. And here you have Jesus, and he's eating with the enemy. Tim Chester, in his book, he says, Jesus is handing out party invitations, and they read, You are invited to my party in the new creation. Come as you are. The religious leaders agreed that there was a party and that there was an invitation, and even that it was possible to attend. But when the religious leaders passed out the invitations, they did not say, come as you are. They said, you've got to get changed. You've got to get cleaned up. And as a result, people didn't come because they didn't think that they were good enough. And so three times a day, as the children of Israel, you were reminded that you couldn't afford and that you could not live up. And so into the situation comes Jesus. And Jesus replies to the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? He says, I have not come. It is not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so how does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus mends the human heart with a feast, with food. Arthur Boers, the South African theologian, he says, if you can read the Gospels without getting hungry and not paying attention, let's look at Luke's Gospel alone. Stories of Jesus eating with people. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at the home of Levi. In Luke 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon, the Pharisee, during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10, Jesus eats at the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their meals and be their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites Zacchaeus uh, to a meal, or Jesus is invited by Zacchaeus for a meal. In Luke 22... Uh, There's this account of the Last Supper. In Luke 24, the risen Christ has a meal with his two disciples in Emmaus, and then later he's having a fish barbecue on the beach with the rest of his disciples. Everything Jesus did had an element of food connected to it. There are three ways that the New Testament uh, finishes the sentence, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man is an Old Testament way of saying the Messiah, Jesus. And when they talk about the Son of Man came, they're saying the Messiah will come and do this there's three ways that the new testament translate uh, ends that sentence the son of man came firstly in matthew 20 not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many the son of man came to seek and save the lost the son of man came what eating and drinking now listen to this the first two statements are statements of purpose why did jesus come the reason jesus came was to serve and give his life over as a ransom and to seek and save the lost that's the purpose. How did he do that? The last statement is a statement of method. Jesus achieves seeking and saving the lost and laying his life down as a ransom for many by eating and drinking. And so the way that Jesus came to seek and save the lost was to look them in the face over a meal and say to them, I am here to invite you in and to make you well. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, hey, what I want What my Father wants is not your self-righteous standards and your rules and your laws, and not all the things that you think are going to make God love you. What I want is just a heart of mercy to be played out amongst my people. And so Jesus uses food as a sign of God's great welcome. Again, Tim Tim Chester says, The parties of Jesus are celebrations. The Pharisees are mourning over the absence of God and, and His kingdom. But in Jesus, God has come to His people and His kingdom is dawning. So fasting gives way to feasting. Their meals are eaten with joy. They must be. Compare the old way to the new way. The new way is gracious rather than religious, inclusive rather than exclusive, welcoming rather than unwelcoming. It is characterized by feasting rather than fasting, rejoicing rather than grumbling. It recognizes its need and finds hope in the Savior rather than feeling self-righteous and therefore rejecting the Savior. Look at these two lists, gracious, inclusive, welcoming, feasting, rejoicing, and recognizing your need compared with religious, exclusive, unwelcoming, grumbling, and self-righteousness. Are you living as someone who belongs to the new way? Are we celebrating? We're leaning into the joy of Jesus, the delight given to us by the Father. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, this is the day the church of Jesus Christ was born. What does the first church do? The Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people. The church of Jesus Christ is instituted. And the very first thing that the body of believers do, instituted and anointed by the Spirit of God, is they begin to do what? Devote themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They come together. They open up the Scriptures. They enjoy community. They pray, and they eat a great meal together. And it says that they ate their meals with gladness of heart. And you see how central food is throughout the rest of the scriptures in reconciling people and implementing the message of Jesus because it's a welcoming of grace. Friends, meals, if done intentionally, can be a welcoming of grace. Isaiah 55, the prophet says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You spend money on what is not bread, and you labor for what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Friends, God's not on a diet. God's, he's bringing dessert. He's pouring second cups. He's saying, hey, who wants more? Have you ever gone over to someone's house and there's just like holy, unreasonable hospitality and there's just like extra food around? Jesus is saying, hey, this is what it's like in my kingdom. Just come, join in. You're not excluded, you're welcomed in and there's the richest of fare." The last thing Jesus says here is meals are an invitation to relationship. Jesus wasn't just saying, hey, come to dinner. How is, how is feasting, Brian? How, how is this a spiritual practice? Well, Jesus is saying, hey, come into my life. Practice this discipline of feasting and joy and celebration. Eat meals with gladness of heart. Come into my life. And the beautiful thing that Jesus is saying here to all those outcasts is that there is a place where you belong, and it is with me, and it's in my kingdom. He's saying, turn your heart towards home. There is a place for you. And so, for Jesus, and this is where the practice and the discipline comes in, Jesus used meals and a feast as a way of inviting people not just to be forgiven, but into relationship and into delight. Robert Kaplan, he says, While food keeps us alive, its eternal purpose is to excite our senses in preparation to the day when we will sit down at the heavenly banquets and see how gracious our God is. Food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness, ordained at a continual remembrance that the world is always more delicious than it is useful. So what is the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of heaven, friends, is not fluffy clouds. We're going to go and, like, pluck a harp for eternity. The kingdom of heaven is like a marriage ceremony and a great wedding banquet. It's a feast. One of the things that uh, Caitlin and I had, like, a very traditional, like, big wedding with, like, all the family and friends and a bunch of people you just don't know. But you're right. You just have to pay for it. But uh, we had lamb shanks at our wedding. And there's two things that the people always talk about at our wedding. They don't talk about all, like, the special moments that we enjoyed. I mean, we talk about that. But what everyone else experienced, they talk about the food and they talk about the dancing that we had because South African bonds is we can throw it down on the dance floor. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven is a great wedding banquet. We're gonna be busting moves with Jesus on the dance floor and eating a feast. Jesus changed the course of human history. He has the practice. Okay, you ready? Jesus changed the course of human history by who he ate with. Jesus changed the world, he deconstructed race relations, he welcomed outcasts, he confronted hypocrisy simply by who he sat with at a table and ate a meal with. And it is one of the great reminders that you and I can change our community, can change our city, can change our school simply by who we choose to eat with and practicing feasting and delight. And that means that three times a day, you have the opportunity to grab someone in your life and simply say to him, hey, do you want to grab breakfast before work? Do you want to, who are you sitting with at lunch today? Notice the person sitting by themselves, taking your meal over and sitting with them over lunch, buying someone a coffee. What are you doing after work? Want to grab a drink or a quick bite? Who's in your life? Who's in the mission field of your life right now that's coming to mind? Is the Holy Spirit dropping a person, a face, a name into your heart right now through whom you can inject it with the love and mission of Jesus simply by choosing to eat with that person this week and have a feast? I'm going to give us two practical challenges. This is like super practical today. The first practical challenge is you're going to come on Tuesday the 7th and whether you can be here in person or not, we're going to fast together as a community, one in heart and we're going to cry out to God and trust that he'll pour out his spirit and grace and measure and power on our church and our city. Tuesday the 7th, prayer meeting in the morning, fast during the day, worship at night. The second challenge I have for you, so easy. Make a commitment in your heart right now To eat one meal with a person who does not know Jesus this week. Just do that. Sky Jethune he says, our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing, radiating the light of heaven, and our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again. In our churches, people should find rest from their battle for acceptance and release from the lie that there are nothing more than the goods they possess. When we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and begin to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. So we need to use meals as a form of radical welcome in the same way that Jesus did. Sometimes we think mission and, and, and evangelism needs to be like getting the soapbox out and shouting on the street corner. It can be that, you know, but, but Jesus modeled for us sitting down over a great steak or a world-class class cup of coffee just opening up his heart to receive. Scott Juthini goes on, he says, the English word hospital originates from the same Latin root word, Sorry, the English word hospitality originates from the same Latin root word as hospital. A hospital is literally a home for strangers. Of course, it, can, it has come to mean a place for healing, but there is a link between being welcomed and being healed. And so my challenge for you this week is who's the person in your world, the person that comes to mind right now, who's the prodigal that's going to be welcomed home in the kingdom of heaven around your table? Who's that for you? You see, the most Christ-like thing, the most evangelistic or missional thing that you and I could do this week could be just grabbing someone at work, the outcast, the person who feels like they don't fit, and just inviting him or her over for a cup of coffee. Might be taking the promiscuous girl that everyone gossips about and just saying, hey, let's have lunch. And over lunch, just saying, why don't you tell me the details of your life? What's going on? Might be taking the arrogant person at work that no one likes, and just saying, "Hey, let's grab a drink. Tell me the story of your life. Where'd you grow up? Let me tell you this: We can do church programs all week long. I'm pastor. I love church programs. I'm locked down for it. But one of the most courageous things that you and I can do is take someone out for a meal. And I want to tell you this: When you do that, Jesus will show up. Not everyone can preach. Not everyone can lead worship. Not everyone's gonna lead an open table or a small group, but everyone can invite someone out for a meal and listen to their story. Tim Chester goes on to say in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. We can make community, sorry, we we can make community and mission sound like specialized activities that belong to experts. Some people have vested interest in doing this because it makes them feel extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can hold an audience and, and create a movement. But some push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's not complicated. True, it's not always easy. It involves people invading your space and going places where you don't feel comfortable, but it's not complicated. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out in mission. It's a core, simple practice in following Jesus and being a disciple. And so we have to remember this. The gospel is good news, and the world is aching. Life isn't just hard for Christians, people. Life is hard for everyone. And everyone in the world is asking, is there any good news out there anywhere? We carry good news. And they're going to hear the good news at a dinner table when you share a meal with them. And so we need to be people just like Jesus who believe that God did not come to keep sinners away, but to invite them in. And he does that around our dinner tables or the coffee table or the, the bar at work. We share a story of grace. I'm about the band up. And uh, we're gonna go into a longer time of worship on the back end, just how, how we structure it, and that's great. 7th of November, we're gonna fast. We're gonna practice that discipline. And this week, I'm gonna invite you to feast with someone in your life, listen to their story, and show them Jesus through just some radical hospitality. You know what's so cool? Is that radical hospitality, the bar's pretty low. No one's like buying people a meal nowadays. All meals are takeouts and quick fixes or a protein shake. The bar's pretty low. Taking someone out for a coffee and just listening to their story may just be the radical hospitality that the Holy Spirit will ordain to bring them into the kingdom of God. So I just want to say this to you. Jesus used food and a meal to invite people in. And I just pray that these words touch your heart. If if you've been sexually promiscuous and you think, hey, I'm a failure and like I'm not welcome in, we see through the scriptures that Jesus, we are the very people that Jesus would choose to sit down and have a meal with. If you feel like you're not good enough or you've got some sin in your life that excludes you, Jesus wants to eat a meal with you. He loves you. If you've been divorced or you feel like a failure, you feel like your relationships are like hindering your walk with Jesus, Jesus just wants to sit down and have a meal with you. If you're addicted to porn or you think that there's no hope in your life, Jesus just invites you, hey, come follow me, eat with me, let's have a meal. If you're angry or aggressive, there's good news, Jesus will eat a meal with you. If you're the outcast, the person who feels like you're not welcome at church, you're very welcome here. And Jesus will always want to eat a meal with you. There's a place for you at his table. And so, whether you're on the receiving end of sitting down with Jesus, or God's giving you, igniting something in your heart right now and putting a person or a name in that you want to go and eat a meal with, the beauty of the gospel is that we're all welcome and there's always a seat at the table. It's why we call our groups open tables. It's, there's, there's a seat available. There's, Jesus sets a place before you in the presence of your enemies. Let's pray. You wanna stand with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we just say with all of our hearts, thank you. Thank you that you came for us in our sin and in our brokenness. Thank you that you didn't ask us to get dressed up or fixed up. Or Thank you that in our sin and our rebellion and in the mess, of our lives, you come to us and you just say, I would love to get together and have a meal with you. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the bread of life. We thank you that your body was broken, your blood was shed, and that we may become sons and daughters and sisters and brothers and kings and priests in the kingdom. And so we choose today to feast on you. We make it our ambition to labor for the food that never perishes we will never hunger or thirst again, which is you. And we thank you for your grace, Lord God. We thank you that all of our discipleship with Jesus is actually really practical. And so we lean in and we make a decision today to follow you again and follow the example you set for us in the scriptures. And We ask Holy Spirit that you shape us to become more and more and more like Christ. Amen, friends. We're going to just worship together a bit more now and close out our time with some other announcements. But I just pray that the Spirit of God would do a work in you and just, I pray that the thing that we leave with today is actually like my discipleship with Jesus can actually be really practical. There's some real tangible things I can put in place that'll help shape and form me into the image of Christ. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in San Diego, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.